0: On today's podcast, I am really flattered that this particular architect who has been a part of the fabric of the awards for over a decade now, and that's revealing more how long I've been in the role other than how long their experience has been. But I'm really absolutely delighted to welcome Chris Major, from Welsh and Major Architects here today and it's been a long time that we've actually known each other. It's been an awfully long time and it's been such a pleasure over (laughs) all these years. (laughs) It's been lovely. When I think about and we'll talk a little bit about it, further down the track but I remember the first time you sort of came into the picture was about roof tiles and then since then obviously you've experimented more and designed more and more with brick and had that beautiful result in this year's awards with Seagrass House.
1: It's been quite a journey for us you know I suppose we started with the tiles 10 years ago or so Mm. and That was when our practice was reasonably established, but we were still developing, as we are now. But over the last 10 years, we've really sort of explored different types of building, different types of architecture. It's been a journey.
0: All right, so before we go into some of those projects, tell us a little bit about your childhood and growing up. I
1: moved around a lot when I was growing up. I grew up in Sydney, Perth, Melbourne, and
0: Newcastle. Wow, that's Um, a lot of movement. Big
1: movement around Australia. And we also spent a little bit of time overseas. And that was just following my dad's work around. But I suppose the majority of my growing up time was in Melbourne, in the suburbs of Melbourne, and then in high school in Newcastle. And so those were the sort of formative bits of my childhood. The Melbourne experience, which was my primary school years, we lived in a a lovely leafy Melbourne suburb and lived in this gorgeous house there. And I think that was probably one of the early things that just subconsciously
0: got me interested in architecture. Okay. Yeah. Because I'm always curious around that because architecture for me growing up, I didn't know any architecture. Did you know any architects no, growing
1: up? I didn't know a single architect. And so I, the house we were living in in Melbourne, it turned out it was built by an architect as his own home in the 60s sometime. And it was a great house. And I never really knew why I loved that house so much. It was just a, a fantastic place to live. Mm-hmm. And I was really sad when we moved from that to a project home in Newcastle, which was an entirely different beast. And so when I found out later that You know, it was this architect design home and I realised that it wasn't, you know, the spaces were great, the way you entered the house, the way you occupied the house, they were all fantastic and the way it sort of sat in amongst the trees. I realised that this guy who designed it was a really skilled architect and had made that experience for me growing up a really lovely experience in that house.
0: That's a wonderful kind of legacy, isn't it, to look back on. How do you think moving around has shaped you?
1: I suppose it's given me different experiences and an understanding of different environments. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I mentioned the house we moved to in Newcastle, which, you know, was my dad's pride and joy because he bought it off the plan, okay. And, you know, all of that stuff. And but it was a pretty a pretty typical but fairly ordinary eighties suburban home. Mm-hmm. And the experience of living in that home was such a contrast to the Melbourne house that I'd loved so much. Maybe that was also being a teenager possibly. Mm -hmm. And so moving around gave me that appreciation of different houses and what they meant to you, different Mm. types of living, different experiences of spaces. And then after I finished high school, I moved overseas for a year. I was an exchange student for a year and I moved to Finland. And when I was in Finland, that, again, was an entirely different experience. That was where I really discovered architecture and design. Wow. Because my family, they weren't a design family. My Mm. dad was an engineer. My grandfather was a builder, so I'd grown up sitting in the workshop underneath the workbench. All my uncles were builders and so I knew that there was this thing about building but I didn't know anything about architecture. Yes. And I I came to it in two ways. One was the Finland experience but the other experience, I suppose, was also studying art at high school as well. Okay.
0: And are you a painter
1: or a drawer? Neither. I am more of a sculptor. Wow. Well, I was when I was in high school. Yes. And now I, I kind of express that through my architecture. Yes. So, yeah.
0: And so when you were sculpting, did architecture come up as a possible profession or? When I was studying
1: art, we had to do a component of art history. And my lovely art teacher in high school was a bit passionate about architecture. So he took us down the history of architecture path. Mm. And that was my first little taste of architecture. Mm. I still didn't think I could be an architect because I didn't know any. I didn't know Mm. what they did really or how it all worked. Mm. But when I went to Finland and I started to experience a different type of architecture and a kind of design approach to life, I suppose, that the Finnish have intrinsically in their culture, I then went, no, architecture is the thing I have to do.
0: So can you share a little bit of an example about how that differs so much in Finland or what it was showing you? Look, I think Finland. Finland's a really
1: fascinating country. I, I have a sort of deep affection for it, not only because I spent 12 months there but just because the Finnish people, they live in this incredibly beautiful but incredibly difficult land, you know. It's freezing cold. It's tough survival there and it has been throughout history. They've been either part of Sweden or part of Russia for most of their history up until the modern age. Mm-hmm. But I think what's grown out of that is this real appreciation for how design can make life better. Okay. You know, how the way you build or the objects in a house or the way that the houses are put together, how they can make life better. Everything is considered... Because, you know, life and death depends on it. You know, you've got to keep places warm. You've got to create beautiful internal environments because you're living inside a lot of the time. It's not designed for design's sake. It's Mm. designed for living.
0: Yep. Yeah. And why Finland? Like what was the choice behind that? Oh, I didn't really get a choice. (laughs) I was a Rotary
1: Exchange student. So when I was growing up, my dad worked for a Swedish company as an engineer. So we'd spent six months living in Sweden. And so when the time came and I put in my application to be an Exchange student, I put down Sweden as my first choice because I knew a little bit of the language. I'd been there before. It wasn't too scary. Mm -hmm. And they sent me to Finland.
0: So (laughs) next door, I suppose. Yeah, okay. (laughs) That makes sense. So you come back and then you... We know that you study at Newcastle University.
1: Yeah, I had a few false starts before that, okay. as, as you do. So I started off at the Institute of Technology, which is now UTS, Yes. which way back then was a course where you had to work full-time and study yes. full-time. And it was hard going. So yep. I was waitressing to earn proper money working in the architecture office to get experience and then studying part-time and, you know, trying to, you know, pay rent and do all those things. And it all just, you know, I got through it half a year.
0: <laughs> Gee, I wonder why.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then went, oh, this is really hard. Yeah, Ran away to Melbourne for a bit, just worked down there doing odd jobs until I worked out watch. I wanted to do next and decided no I really did want to do architecture so I moved back to Newcastle and Newcastle was a great town to study because well a the school architecture school in Newcastle was amazing Mm -hmm. and b it was a great town to be a student you know you could live there pretty cheaply you know my family was there but I didn't go back and live at home I managed to find a share house and and do all of that sort of stuff so had my independence going to uni only had one part-time job It was fine. It was good.
0: So just given that you had that sort of worldly experience of Finland around architecture, when you were at university, were there architects that made an impression on you or what did that do to your understanding of architecture?
1: Well, I I think
0: like the first architect – Apart from my high school studies,
1: the first mm. architect I got to know and love was the, you know, very famous Finnish architect Alba Aalto. Mm. And so I was lucky enough to visit a few Aalto buildings when I was in Finland. But his design influence in Finland is just everywhere. Even if you don't go to one of his buildings, the Finnish people are so proud of What he did and his influence on contemporary Finnish architecture is huge. Yes. So when I went to uni, I had that in my head. And Alto back then wasn't very fashionable in architecture. It was the sort of late 80s. We were coming out of postmodernism. We were starting to look at sort of other new theories of architecture. And Alto was a little bit old fashioned. But I still had this passion for the beautiful complexity of Alto's work, but also the modernism
0: inherent in his work Mm. as well. So you finish university and then what happens?
1: Well, uni was a a long and drawn out affair, (laughs) as it is for many architects. It is for architects, yeah. (laughs) So I did my three years at Newcastle. I then moved to Melbourne and I worked in Melbourne for a while for Philip Cox Sanderson, which was Philip Cox's office down there run by John Sanderson. Then the recession hit in Melbourne And everything got a bit tough, but I also had, my dad got sick, and so I also had a a more compelling family reason to move back to Newcastle. So I moved back to Newcastle, worked for the government architect's office in Newcastle for a while, and that was a great experience, working on schools and hospitals and, and buildings like that. Um, and being given a lot of responsibility as a not a full graduate, which was great, just sort of thrown in the deep end. And then went back to uni and did my final two years at Newcastle again. And then after that, there was a bit of a transition period. I was offered a position at Newcastle to work as a, they called it an associate lecturer. Okay. Um, but I was lecturing, I was tutoring and I was doing research. So mm-hmm. I did that for a year. And also doing a little bit of part-time architecture work. And then the year after that, I worked for Carolyn Pigcock. So I'd sort of worked for various architects up to that point, but I spent a year working. My first sort of full graduate job was working for Caroline. And, and that was fantastic. Again, she threw me in the deep end. So she had an office in Newcastle at the time, but then moved her office to Sydney. Yeah was still lecturing at Newcastle Uni, which is where we had met, and but set up this office in Sydney. And so I was kind of left to man the, the Sydney office when she wasn't around. And that was a bit of a baptism by fire as well, but it was a great learning experience. And Carolyn gave me some really good foundations in thinking about sustainability as She's well. very
0: passionate about that. Yeah. yeah.
1: And then following that, we went overseas. Mm-hmm. So by that stage, I'd met David and we decided we were going to travel overseas together. So we did a bit of touring around and landed in London. Mm-hmm. Of course, we left Sydney just as all of the Olympic 2000 work was starting to come on and everybody in Sydney was incredibly busy. Arrived in London, there's no work. <laughs> Our timing was impeccable. And then eventually found some work in London and worked there for about three years. I worked for a firm called Harper and Mackay. And doing that was a great experience because they worked, like a lot of the buildings we were working on there were existing buildings where we were retrofitting and one of the big projects i worked on there was retrofitting a big old warehouse and power station building on the thames as a digital broadcasting facility and that was fabulous yeah. after 3 years we came back to sydney and by that stage all the olympic work had gone and there was no work in sydney
0: <laughs> so Chris, just going back to london what did you notice as the main architectural approach differences Ah,
1: well, I think the big thing there was that this approach to existing buildings, because they have a full city. There's Mm. not, there's very few greenfield sites or even brownfield sites sometimes. And so you're always working with existing buildings. You're always trying to adapt something, always trying to take something and make it better. Mm. And I love that. I really enjoy the taking of a problem, a building that exists or a site that exists that's constrained, difficult, and trying to, you know, solve that as a problem but not just solve the problem, actually create something beautiful Mm. out of that situation.
0: Mm. Yeah. So you arrived back and I think architects have impeccable timing because through these wonderful podcasts I've been able to understand that most people finish their degree when a recession occurred yep. or <laughs> made these major changes and then something happened. And But you've come back and you've decided to set up your own practice?
1: Not, not straight away. Right. We actually spent about seven years back in Sydney working for other people. Mm-hmm. David and I both went and applied for various jobs and we were both went to Zarn's Associates Mm -hmm. and did interviews there and we were both offered jobs there. David took the job. I didn't take the job. And I had in the back of my mind this idea that I would explore, you know, possibly the other strengths that I think I have. And so whilst I I love and am passionate about design, I actually enjoy the whole of a project. I enjoy the the setting it up, the problem solving, the, you know, taking it through from the very beginning from the setting, the brief, the concept all the way through to the end of construction. So I went and worked on the dark side. I went and became a project manager for a while. And that was great, but I didn't quite fit the project management mould. So the company I was working for, I did the sort of classic project management role within that company for a few years, but I was a bit of a, a square peg in a round hole. So they kept on giving me all the projects that didn't quite fit the standard. And that was fantastic. They put me on a an economic development project or all the tricky things that weren't necessarily straight building or straight architecture, mm. but all the odd little projects where mm. Actually, creativity was what was required, just a different type of creativity to architecture. So that was a great experience. But after seven years, I'd had enough. And that was around about the time that David and I were talking seriously about setting up a practice. He'd already jumped ship and started the practice. I was working in the practice one day a week. He was working the practice part-time. We had small children by that stage. But I was still working, you know, three days a week in the other job to pay the mortgage, (laughs) as you do in architecture. And I gradually sort of weaned myself off that role as our practice sort of took hold and we started to be able to get a bit of income in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because I just think it's such a courageous thing to do to set your own practice Mm -hmm. up, especially at that time in your life where responsibility is is all around.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's a huge leap of faith. It's quite uncomfortable that, you know, just being in that place where, yeah, you're not always sure. I'm sure many other architects have talked about this and David may have mentioned it as well, but, you know, three months to the cliff where you know you've got work but it's always got a time frame it's project based work so you've always got to be looking ahead to where the next project's going to come from
0: And I think we mentioned before but one of the first projects that sort of you were brought to my attention was obviously the house with tiles on it. And maybe just talk a little bit about that for us and and why tiles, I guess.
1: Well, that was a great
0: house. That was for
1: a friend. Lots of our early work actually came from people we knew Mm. and that house, you know, it's in Haberfield, it's in this beautiful conservation area, but it was a, it had this funny little addition on the back that was needed to go. And, you know, really tight heritage constraints in the area. And Haberfield's this place of tiled roofs. Mm. And so we didn't want to do, you know, a faux Federation addition to the existing cottage. But we thought, why don't we take that material and play with it? And so it was all about finding a, a you know, a playful solution that could enhance the conservation streetscape but be a really strong contemporary response mm. as well, this little infill of tiles. It was lots of fun. It was our first foray into using tiles. Mm. And we had to learn fairly quickly about how to do it and then explore how to do it in a a way that may not have been done in Australia very often, which was using it as a vertical
0: cladding as yes. well. Yes, and we we did say that we've sort of been able to create fact sheets around it because a lot of architects and designers have looked at it and gone, we want to do that, but how How can you make it easier yeah. for us? So. Yeah.
1: Well, we were really lucky that we worked also with the tilers themselves. And, you know, we were harking back to the old Pizza Hut kind of tile room. <laughs> those those little skirts around In the way. edge of the Pizza Hut. Trying to find out how they
0: did that. and I've Forgotten um, all about it. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Like Pizza Hut. Yeah. It was such an institution back then growing up.
1: It was. And and it was the roof that was iconic. That's you know, right. you saw that roof form and you thought, Oh that's Pizza
0: Hut. Just thinking of those early days with your own practice, were there any projects that you look back sort of fondly on, whether it you know that you really felt defined where you were going? Oh, all of
1: them. Mm. (laughs) Um, I think the very first project that we did, which was in Newtown, again a house for a friend, that was a fundamental kind of building block for the practice. We'd actually started that one before we'd officially started our practice. We were both still working for others and moonlighting. And that was a great collaboration with the client on that project. He's an engineer and we've gone on to do two other projects For him since then. And all of them have just been so much fun. The design process has been incredibly collaborative. He's been uh, willing to explore kind of adventurous design solutions and he's sort of pushed us a little bit which has been great Mm. it's just been fun a fun Mm. process and that's the way that design should be it should be a collaboration and it should be an enjoyable collaboration that's where you get the best result
0: that's right but many of the times it just isn't for a variety of reasons is it yeah so obviously your most recent project I mean I absolutely adore Seagrass House I wondered whether you could talk to us a little bit around how that came about and the material choice
1: so that house was such a joy. Again an amazing collaboration with the clients. David and I were giving a lecture at the National Gallery in Canberra a few years ago and after the lecture we went down to the car park to get into the car that was you know with our friends who were taking us to dinner afterwards and the car park lights were out and we were hunting around this dark car park. It was such a weird scene looking for our car and Out of the darkness, we hear this voice saying, "I just wanted to say thank you for your lecture; it was really great." And this woman appears out of the dark in the car park and says, "And I'd like to get in touch with you about designing my house for me." And she had been—it wasn't just from the lecture; she had been looking at our work and was a frequent flyer at those lectures. They're fantastic lecture series by the ACT Institute of Architects. But she had come along and yeah, decided that she'd like to talk to us about their house. So it's down the south coast originally intended to be a holiday house Mm -hmm. it was a site that had been in her family since the sort of 50s her father had bought the site and it had this old timber cottage on it that had been steadily eaten away by termites Mm -hmm. it's in Tathra so I did it managed miraculously to avoid the big Tathra fires that went through in 2017 Mm -hmm but it was on a beautiful, heavily timbered site in a little valley near the beach, and so it was bushfire affected. Mm -hmm. There was a, a number of things that impacted on the way the design evolved and the decision to use brick. First of all, we were sort of building out of this rocky hillside. Mm. And the colours of the beach and the rock face around the beach were just beautiful. There were these deep golden reds, sometimes even purpley colours in the rocks around there. And the second thing was the bushfire considerations. So, you know, brick was a pretty logical choice on those two factors. But we also love the idea of this building kind of coming out of that rock and growing out of the ground and really having a building that was attached to the landscape. But it also set up some challenges for us as well. Mm -hmm. You know, brick was great because of all of those things I've just mentioned, but we also wanted to have lots of access to views, so lots of expanses of glass and that meant big window openings, corner window openings within the brickwork which were all challenges for our structural engineer and our builder. Yes. And we also wanted to project the building out into the treetops and again creating some fantastic challenges for structural engineer and builder to create some cantilevers lined with bricks that kind of corbel out of
0: the hillside. They're beautiful effects and embellishments. Yeah. Uh, they really make it so special.
1: Yeah. And that, like the way that the brick corbels, the the kind of that unitized quality of bricks and the way we were able to express that at the same time as expressing the sort of monolithic quality of the building, that was really special. And we had lots of fun playing around with the bricks in that regard.
0: Mm. And how long did that project take? So on site, it was
1: remarkably quick. We had builders who were very focused, really excellent quality builders, really focused on just getting in and doing the job well really organised and the foreman on that job was originally a bricklayer by trade. Oh. So he was all across the bricks from day one and I think from go to woe it was about 12 months. We were aiming for about 10 but 12, 12 was remarkable and we built during COVID as well. So was
0: access difficult given ac- the site? Yeah, access yeah. was quite difficult.
1: Okay. And that was another, another reason that we went down the path of bricks because bricks in terms of how we got them, we could get them onto the site and then they could be carried in sort of smaller unitized bucket loads and, and wheelbarrowfuls to where they needed to be without having to bring in big monolithic materials. So it all, it all made a lot of sense.
0: I know from what we know about you but also from what you say about your design work, obviously carbon neutrality is really important. How do you think that's changed for architects
1: I think if you'd asked us about it 10 years ago, it wouldn't really have been front of mind. It was something that we knew about um, and we knew people were sort of working on. We were conscious that there were some materials that, you know, had a higher carbon footprint than others and obviously passive solar design has always been a a really, you know, big thing for us. But it wasn't front of mind, whereas now it is absolutely front and centre. It's just essential to saving the planet.
0: Where do you see the role that architects should play in that
1: conversation? Well,
0: considering that building is 40%
1: of carbon emissions, I think we have a huge responsibility in what happens next. We have to step up and make sure that we're not building where we don't need to. You know, that's Mm. the first step. We shouldn't be building it unless we absolutely need to and we shouldn't build more than we need to. And when we do build, we have to do it in a really considered way. It's got to be the best possible building that's going to last and perform and not, you know, have to be replaced in 20 years' time.
0: Do you feel that sometimes and the architectural voice is lost though? I mean, there's a lot of factors that can overshadow that.
1: I think it's all about the mindset with which you approach the challenge. You know, architecture is a great place that brings in all of these challenges that we have to face. You know, there's design challenges that range from the kind of ephemeral all the way through down to the really practical. And we have to, as architects, synthesise all of those things. You know, it's not, we can't be selective. We have to do it all. Mm. And that's really the role of the architect. So, yes, it is a challenge. You know, you're always balancing competing demands in architecture and design, Mm. but we have to do it. There's no way out.
0: You've been involved in our awards on a number of different aspects. You've written a brief for me for the Robin Dodds Rooftile Excellent Concept Award and you've participated. What do award programs mean to architects? We love them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Absolute sucker for
1: an awards program. I think recognition is really important. You know, we work so hard as a profession and as an industry to do Good work to make buildings better and it's really nice to be recognised for when you get that right and great to be recognised by your peers, great to be recognised by industry. So that's a really important thing to us personally. But the other really important thing for awards is showcasing great architecture and putting it out there so that the public can see what can be achieved. And we're such an aspirational society trying to make good design aspirational.
0: Mm. And how do the Think Brick
1: Awards differ, do you think, from others? I think the Think Brick Awards and the way that the industry supports those awards is incredibly important because... The publicity that comes from those awards is huge and that does both of those things I was talking about. You know, it puts out good design as being aspirational for the industry and for the public, for the consumer. But the other thing it does is it supports architects and supports good design, you know. It encourages us to really strive and make our buildings work harder it's a challenge always, but when we think that there's an opportunity for that to be recognised, then it just gives us a little boot along. It's great.
0: When you look at the future of architecture and you we've just talked a little bit about some of the things that have changed just in the past decade, what sort of advice would you have for architects that are just graduating now or entering the profession?
1: I think they're entering the profession at a really challenging but incredibly interesting time. You know, I graduated a long time ago and the the challenges for us were different then and now it's a much more complex world and things move much faster. And so to get things built well, to get things to design well, to take the time to design well is much harder now, I think. So, you know, my advice would be just take a big, deep breath, mm-hmm. dive in, but give yourself time to design and think about design in a really holistic way and think about it from the beginning of the brief all the way through to, you know, when somebody's closing the door and the project's finished.
0: Design goes all the way through the process. I love that. Chris, thank you for joining us today. Before we finish, I'm going to ask you a few rapid-fire questions. All answers are acceptable. Okay. Reading the news, a newspaper or online? Newspaper, definitely. I miss it so much. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Handwriting or typing?
1: Typing is much more efficient but I remember it better
0: when I write it by hand. For sketching ideas and concepts, would you use a pencil, pen or an e-pen?
1: I was always a pencil girl but
0: I have graduated to an (laughs)
1: e-pen. Work
0: in progress. (laughs) Do you like to read books or listen to audiobooks? Read books. What's important to you, style or substance? Both equally important. Coffee or tea? Coffee. TV shows or movies? I
1: would have always said movies but I, I'm graduating to the stream service.
0: And the binging is yeah. unfortunate about that. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Antique or modern? Both. I love a good vintage modern piece.
1: Call or text? Again, I was always pick up the phone. It's a better form of communication, but text sometimes just fills the gap.
0: Mm -hmm. Travel back in time or into the future?
1: I think the future. Exterior or interior? It's all the same. It's all the environment that you live in. They're all spaces.
0: Video games or board games? Board games. Form or function? Both. And with relation to design, complex or simple? You need
1: to make the complex simple.
0: Chris, thank you so much for being here today and also for collaborating and really coming on the journey with me and the industry over this last decade. Thank you. It's been my absolute
1: pleasure. Thank you.
0: If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.